Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 21st of December 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be jo joined by Alex Thompson from the Netherlands, bringing us Eastern approaches, and also our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. Well, we've got a very busy news today. We're going to do our best to get through all of the topics that. Uh, we've selected, but it seems that without us really planning, the theme is we are talking very much about breakdown. But first of all, let's kick off with a look at uh, what's happening in Poland. Alex, over to you. Brian, the Poles are, of course, not only Ukrainians' neighbours, but historically Ukraine's key sponsors and fosterers in bringing Euro Ukraine into the Western European fold. Uh, a bit of a boo-boo. Uh, as a grenade launcher was presented by the Ukrainians to their uh, uh, cherished Polish allies. Reuters has picked up on this from the Polish press. Uh, Poland's most senior policeman, Jarosław Szymczyk, police commissioner in Warsaw, uh, opened his prezies. And if you tap that again, the next day Reuters came up to date with the news that he actually had to be sent to hospital. Uh, it's been confirmed in Polish media that the present from the Ukrainians was a live grenade launcher and that Mr. Shimchik accidentally fired it in his office. He may yet be prosecuted by his own underlings for letting off an explosion uh, in a confined space. Uh, if we go on to the next slide there, we see that the last left-wing head of state that Poland had, former President Aleksandr Kwasniewski, is writing in Politico, uh, which is Brussels' go-to newspaper for many things. Uh, just today, uh, midwinter's day, uh, the byline is up. And the headline is a truly European Ukraine needs both victory and a stronger rule of law. So sandwiched in between the obligatory paragraphs of homage to Slava Ukraini and nasty Russians comes this, which I won't read out because we have so much to do today. But Kwasniewski, uh, perhaps freer to speak than his successors because he's a left wing man, uh, is pointing out that as with Syria, uh, in the case that case it was the Turks, uh, people have marched into state enterprises and walked off with them, not physically stripping them in this case, uh, but making them uh, under cover of the exigencies of a war situation, uh, the owner, the, the property of some rather uh, obscure conglomerates. Uh, one more from Poland, actually, is that it's been picked up by foreign technical press that the Poles do have the constitutional potential to prosecute all their Ukrainian volunteers, their mercenaries, another side of the tide possibly turning. So TFI Global has picked up on this, uh, but the uh, reporting comes from Poland's main quality newspaper, Rzeczpospolita. Uh, so only 34 people from Poland, so a small fraction of the over a thousand Poles who have been operating in the theater, had applied to the Poles to uh, legalize their situation by apl applying for permission to fight for a foreign army. Most European nations do require you to get constitutional permission, otherwise you could lose your citizenship and be prosecuted for war crimes. But Nezhelezhny Dzienik Politichny says that there's over a thousand of these guys and uh, quoting some of the uh, Polish Ministry of Defence people saying it's not fair, they could potentially face prosecution when they return. Possibly this spectre is being dangled now for similar reasons. I don't know whether you have a, a bridging comment before we come back to the British media, Brian. It does look as though some of Ukraine's uh, closest allies, even in what Rumsfeld called New Europe, are getting a bit tired with the way in which the Ukrainians have been using them. Uh, well, I think it's absolutely true that uh, more and more of the so-called allies are starting to ask questions. So we've got the, the subject of mercenaries and, of course, a lot of Polish um, 
mercenary soldiers have now died. Many more are, in, are going to die, certainly with the heavy fighting around Bakhmud in, in uh, eastern Donbass. And um, uh, what else can we see? Well, of course, we've got uh, US senators asking questions about the uh, um, expenditure of billions of uh, dollars in Ukraine. Where is the audit trail for that money? We've got the Germans simply saying we can't give more weapons. So I think that the Polish reaction follows on with what we're seeing, which appears to be a, a breaking away, a dropping down of support by the Western allies, allies for Ukraine. And I wonder whether this could be why I think Zelensky has been traveling to the States today, if that is an accurate report. Could it be that either he's been summoned uh, to have a chat with Mr. Biden or else he's going to be um, uh, he's going to be begging for more money and weapons. But certainly there is a drop off in support. Okay. I would say there's a lot, Sorry. Yes, a, lot, a lot of potential for that to be the case. Uh, we are going to follow the Ukraine war in its new season uh, with, with mounting horror. Uh, and we will ask the hardest questions as well, Brian, including some of the analytical questions which people have started to push at us, such as how is it that you think the Russians are being so restrained as to allow the Ukrainians to keep shelling Russian-speaking populations in the Donbass, although it is said the Russians have the technical ability to stop that. Much too wide a question for now, but I'm just putting on record that we are aware of people asking these questions. We won't give it a pat answer. We will look properly at uh, what the artillery potential is on each side. But on to Britain, because uh, it is actually midwinter's day in the Northern Hemisphere. So in some countries, spring officially begins tomorrow, such as I think Ireland. And uh, there is a little ditty about spring, isn't there? Spring has sprung, the grass is riz. I wonder where Demboides is. Well, Mariana spring certainly has been sprung. So first of all, the Daily Skeptic, uh, Toby Young's platform, uh, has topped and tailed another another outlet's report, which we'll get to in a moment, with a lovely, uh, I don't know what shade of green that would be, pea green, we should no, ask. It's, uh, it's, it's actually common purpose green. It's very clear. Common She's purpose common purpose green, um, green on a common purpose uh, purple background sofa. When, when Debbie comes into her first segment, I'll be happy to defer to her because ladies see a lot more colours than men generally, although we're not supposed to say that in the in the sexual, sexual sense of sex identification, self-identification era. But here we are. The, te the headline is that questions are being asked. A wonderful impersonal use of the passive voice. Questions are being asked about Mariana Spring. Uh, Brian, have we ever asked questions about Mar Mariana Spring? Well, I, I think we've asked quite a lot, actually. We want to know who she really is and what she's really trying to do. And one of the key questions is why will she not engage with a, an interview with UK Column? Well, perhaps we'll bring, bring on Debbie very briefly because she's, she's very keen to speak about that. That's a really good point. Good afternoon, everyone. Yes, I recently tweeted, actually, Mariana Spring. Um, I was desperate for her to interview me because it seems that UK Column is putting out the news prior to the BBC, for example, like antibiotic shortages, medicine shortages. So the things that we're seeing and reporting, we happen to be reporting before the BBC. So I invited her to interview me. But I haven't had a response. Sorry. I'm not, I can That's tragic there, but, but let's see what's going on. Toby Young, bless him, is a bit late to the party. Uh, I might, might, might dare to say he's the outer ring of dissident media. Uh, but UK Column's been well ahead of the curve, thanks not least to Debbie's persistence on Twitter. Uh, here's the original piece by Fred Spelthorpe in The Critic, uh, with a nod to Stravinsky. He entitles his write-up, The Rights of Spring, uh, byline the pandemic's chief 
fact checker, there's a title if ever I saw one, is failing to grasp the realities of the post-COVID era. Again, I will not read because people can freeze the screen, but in the beginning of the article, Mr. Sculthorpe is pointing out that this information reporter is a very broad brush and it can tarnish everyone from former Mail and Telegraph or current Mail and Telegraph writers like Peter Hitchens due to National Health Service doctors. And the second half of that slide is a further extract, which we can bring on, that in using her news at 10 slot on the BBC to invoke a sense of some unique post uh, or pandemic or pandemic enabled paranoia with reference to the Reichsburger raids in Germany that we covered last week, uh, Ms. Spring just uh, went beyond the bounds and uh, uh, of reporting. Uh, and then in this another slide, which I've brought up with some more pertinent extracts, which are worth freezing and reading, Fred Sculthorpe actually has uh, a sniff around the BBC and sees how some of the less favoured dogs' bodies there regard uh, last spring. So let's bring that on screen, and we will see that uh, one senior BBC news journalist who deigns to speak to Fred Sculthorpe because, well, there's there's some usefulness in being in the outer ring of dissident media like the Critic and uh, the Daily Skeptic. It, it means that BBC people will speak to you rather than turn their noses up. Well, uh, Sculthorpe's source says that we senior people at the BBC raise eyebrows about Miss Mariana's remarks, uh, regard which which paint uh, the Reichsburg as a uniquely post-COVID enabled uh, conspiracy group. The, the key terms are emboldened. To embolden and to amplify are the key verbs in, in that world. world. Uh, Sculthorpe goes on to say that it's very reminiscent of um, the uh, Welsh reporter who got very embroiled uh, covering the uh, Russiagate for the Observer, um, uh, Carol Cadwallader, who was the, the, the prototype, the archetype for Mariana Spring. Uh, and Sculthorpe says, at what point does Mrs Spring uh, go beyond what we expect as the BBC as a national broadcaster? And he rather hints in the last paragraphs there that Ms Spring has been speaking to, speaking to too many people who she herself uh, regards as nuts. Um, what should we say? I, th I think this is going to be followed up. And if it's got to this ring of the, the press, the next will probably be the Daily Mail and the Telegraph. Right. But there's another there's another line there, which I think is key in that slide. If we can manage to bring that up on screen again, it's it says there's certainly a crisis of trust at the BBC. And I'm not sure it's helped by the model of Mariana's reporting. Holding yourself up as an arbiter of truth only sets you up for failure. So it seems, um, Alex, that even within the BBC, people are beginning to look at this. I'm going to call her a young upstart reporter and realise that actually she's going to do damage to the BBC's reputation because she's not doing proper um, investigative journalism, investigative reporting. I think this is a very good sign. I think it is. And I don't want to be partisan, uh, but I would just speak on behalf of UK Column News and say that if you are a BBC uh, conscientious journalist uh, or anyone involved in the BBC news machine, particularly documentary and investigative side, you have to use your gut feel to decide whether UK Column is going to give you a fair hearing or not and whether we're likely to respect your anonymity or not. Well, I can only say that we always have scrupulously done so, which is more than you can say for most of the platforms around. Uh, so uh, if you're considering spilling the beans, you could do a lot worse than talking to us, where we'll treat you like ladies and gentlemen. Now, on to Scotland. Uh, David Scott, of course, has already covered his home turf on Monday, but a lot more has happened since. Uh, from a while ago, we have seen this uh, being reported now in the Daily Mail, <clears throat> that the Scottish government is planning to abolish jury trials in rape cases. Uh, we can't go into the long backstory of the Scottish government uh, writing into statute law that judges must direct juries to convict people in certain politically sensitive areas like sexual 
uh, offences, contrary to natural justice, of course, and the contrary to the purpose of a jury. Well, uh, as with the pandemic itself, when uh, uh, Hamza Yousaf, the uh, justice minister, tried to abolish juries for the uh, duration of the pandemic, now we see Francis McMenamin, a member of the Scottish government's governance group, saying that uh, jury service is actually on the rise in countries that have always been under uh, civil law, Argentina, Bulgaria, uh, others come to mind, uh, Russia, uh, some several Latin American countries, and yet at the same time, the European space, pushed actually by Britain, is is trying to curtail juries uh, in the countries and the in the areas of law where they are still used. <clears throat> so that's Scotland's most senior female lawyer, which is a good segue to the disregarding of real women's interests uh, on behalf of uh, fake women and uh, self-identified women. First of all, as a as an even briefer bridge, just to show you what kind of public tenders are being put out by. Uh, Scotland's 32 national, uh, sorry, local authorities, <clears throat> North Lanarkshire Council, where David Scott grew up, wants six immersive experience rooms to provide uh, a Ray Bradbury-style whole wall projection for use by schools and community groups. This is part of a planned digital transformation in communities. Uh, I won't read out any more of that because I think people will spit out their lunch, at least if they're watching in the British and European time zones. But let's go on to the main news from Scotland, which is gender bending. And uh, there's been some quite shocking scenes. Let's go first to that most trusted source, the BBC. Uh, they report that's not young people, teenagers or children, but people aged 16 and 17, how lovely in general, will be allowed to change gender. There was a mammoth voting session at the Scottish Parliament last night. You can see women in a vigil outside the Holyrood Scottish Parliament there last night, uh, pointing out that their gender is not actually a thing. Uh, but let's go on to see what the detail is as reported. Uh, Mrs uh, Sturgeon, the First Minister, has a particularly close ally in the form of Shona Robinson, the Social Justice Minister. Yes, the Scottish Government has one of those. And in a rather uh, Bill and Ben style, we're told that some members of the Scottish Parliament thought this was too, 16 was too young. They, they don't even dare say these are, these are Christians in the Scottish National Party, like John Mason, whose career is on a thread at this point. Uh, but here we have it, uh, 150 proposed amendments being rammed through on a Tuesday night. In fact, the Scottish Tory leader in Holyrood, Douglas Ross, did protest about this at the end of the evening and said, why are we going on till midnight or even uh, we've been asked to go on till 2am? Uh, this is a very Whitehall uh, or Westminster way of doing things, not a Holyrood way. Uh, and in fact, the Holyrood lights uh, in the Parliament chamber are on a uh, timer. I don't know whether this is a, a work-life balance or, a, or an energy-saving measure, but this isn't a, a candlelit vigil within Parliament. This is the members of the Scottish Parliament sitting in the dark, churning through more of the 150 amendments uh, because they are forbidden from lighting their own Parliament. Uh, one more part of that slide from the BBC report. Uh, here's the detail. Right? So Shona Robinson is saying this is all about aligning all rights. So we've already accepted in Scotland uh, that 16-year-olds can vote and call, do all kinds of other things to themselves. So why can't they chop off their genitals? Uh, or in this particular case, self-identify, which is something we covered in extra time um, uh, just the other day, self-identify as the other sex. We have a brief clip of what happened when an amendment proposed by the Scottish Conservatives to prevent registered sex offenders from self-declaring that they are now a woman and can get into a women's space in a prison or any other setting, a hospital, where a, a closed environment where women can't get out, uh, that this should be actually forbidden to those who are registered sex offenders. That, act, that meant amendment was defeated, which led to these scenes uh, when the presiding officer uh, read out the results, scenes from the public gallery, as you'll hear. In the name of Russell Finlay is yes, 59, no, 64. There were two abstentions, and therefore the amendment is 
uh, not agreed to. I call Amendment 94 in the name of Claire Baker. Already Um, okay, uh, excuse me, I think we'll just, uh, excuse me, we'll, to, we'll have to clear the galleries now, thank you, we'll clear the galleries, thank you very much, and we'll suspend the sitting for a few minutes whilst this happens. The gallery was then cleared, and then, uh, in fact, it was Craig Murray's old um, Queen's Council, now King's Council, uh, Roddy Dunlop, one of the most uh, senior Scottish lawyers who isn't completely barking mad like some of them, tweeted out, well, I thought there was no sensible reason that anyone could oppose that amendment, but 64 members of the Scottish Parliament did. Let's bring that on slide. I sincerely hope that I'm wrong and they're right, but regardless, I will never understand why this was a risk that they thought worth taking, that is to allow convicted sex offenders to self-declare uh, that they are now women. Of course, theoretically, it can happen the other way around, but it very rarely does. Um, so this got a, a huge response on Twitter when uh, David Spears uh, tweeted out that uh, the women in the public gallery who shouted, shame on all of you, as we just heard, speak for me too. There was a lot of me tooing in response, and I don't mean of the uh, the kind favoured in Hollywood. Uh, further chuckling in response comes from Mari Hunter, who until earlier this year was a Glasgow city councillor, and in fact used to run uh, Nicola Sturgeon's office in Glasgow, uh, she was uh, having a, a good old giggle at this and says that she felt that all this in interminable voting on amendments, which got defeated by the progressive majority, could be enlivened if after every failed Tory amendment, somebody played a sad trombone, to which Scotland's former Labour leader, Joanne Lamont, replied, I'm glad you're enjoying the joke. Not so funny for vulnerable women, but, you have, but they have maybe just lost their sense of humour. So people can find out more about that by going to the Scottish Parliament TV archive if they can really bear to watch some of this stuff. Uh, but we've just uh, clipped out the main thing for you there. Let's go on to the next slide uh, without further ado, uh, which is that uh, there is a petition, unless we have perhaps skipped that slide, Brian. Let's go forward one more and see if that is available. There it is. A petition uh, to the UK level government and parliament uh, which has got strong showing in Scotland is that the 2010 Equality Act, which is now constitutional level, it's been confirmed in the courts, uh, has now to be updated because at the time it was clear that sex as a protected characteristic meant biological sex. The gender stuff came a lot later. Uh, that's already got half of the 100,000 signatures it would need to force at least an embarrassing debate in Westminster on it and a government response. If you tap that once more, you will see that proportionally, these aren't absolute numbers of signatures on the map, but proportions of each constituency that voted uh, Scotland, and not just Scotland's Bible Belt, but uh, large parts of Scotland have got a strong showing there because they are ahead of the curve in seeing just what gender identity is. Uh, so it's a shame to see that England, Northern Ireland in particular, uh, are rather asleep by comparison in the signing of this petition. If you want to know what's behind all this, read Bruce Scott's uh, three-parter, of which the third part has now just come up, Menticide 101 and The Brainwashing of a World. Part three is just up, New Courage for Old Lies. Uh, it's a much broader canvas he's painting than just gender changing, uh, but he is at the sharp end and he says it's a glorious time to be alive if you know really what's going on. I think that will get many accolades, that uh, review. This is even going to parts of Europe that you wouldn't have expected. So Christian News Europe, based in the Netherlands here, reports that even an Albanian Christian pastor uh, is up before a judge 
because he said that it was a sick society that replaced mother and father with parent one and parent two. Let's bring the details of that up. Uh, Akil Pano uh, said that it was the fruit of a sick society uh, and an unprecedented ethical selfishness. He said this in the television debate, uh, and for which, of course, uh, the commissioner for equality, who's a, an executive rather than a judicial role, uh, has arraigned him. So if you tap that once more, you will see that the word sick was taken out of context uh, on a complaint by the Gay Alliance uh, Albania uh, to the anti-discrimination commissioner. Uh, so now, within a week, the commissioner changed his mind and has decided he is actually going to indict him. And uh, it, allegedly, uh, completely insincere, this means that Pastor Pano is uh, comparing homosexuals with animals uh, simply because he's seeing the consequences that could emerge. Uh, let's go a little further at the end of my uh, foreign segment to Brazil. This isn't reg regarding gender identity, but this is regarding uh, the standards of democracy now. We've been reporting from Brazil for quite a while, on Brazil, uh, and just uh, as we've seen an Albanian pastor in trouble there, so a Brazilian pastor named Fabiano Oliveira is in trouble simply for being on the streets contesting the election results uh, in which Lula is said to beat a Jair beaten Jerry Bolsonaro. Here a Brazilian young man is telling us in English what happens to Pastor Oliveira. December 18, 2022. It is incredible for the first time ever in the history of Brazil, a Brazilian clergyman, Pastor Fabiano Oliveira, is arrested by the federal police for the single fact that he's been for over 48 days protesting against the election results in Brazil and for freedom in the country. Eu vim aqui pedir exílio, exílio, por perseguição política, exílio militar. Eu vim pedir as forças armadas proteção. We are helping Pastor Fabiano for his release and fighting for his freedom. And Minister Alexandre de Moraes, a Supreme Court judge who ruled in favor of his arrest, is right now pushing forward for more dictatorship. A federal não respeitou o limite do exército. Vieram com brutalidade. E arrancou o pastor Fabiano de dentro da barraca. I urge you, Americans and every single Christian around the world, to help us in this fight. And please share this message. This is Pastor Fabiana's arrest. Hoje, de madrugada, Polícia Federal acaba de levar o Pastor Fabiano, a Polícia da Ditadura do Alexandre de Moraes. So the police, the federal police there are moving in to address the pastor uh, uh, Oliveira uh, on the orders not of their own superiors or any part of the executive branch of government, but a judge, uh, Alessandro de Moraes, who you've heard mention of in previous episodes, who's basically now uh, the interim uh, potentate of all Brazil in all three branches of the government with some degree of military resistance. Uh, so this is spreading. And of course, with regard to the Albanian segment we just had, don't forget that Sherry Blair, alias Sherry Booth, trained the Albanian judiciary uh, in a big contract, uh, which she seemed to have landed through her contacts with her husband. Does Britain uh, have better? Sorry, Alex, I, I just wanted to come in because a number of people in our chat box today are saying the world has gone mad. 
this is a fascism, this is a dictatorship coming in. I just want to focus people and say we're clearly seeing policies which appear to be mad. Things are turned on their head. Black is called white, white is called black. But what we're witnessing is orchestrated, an orchestrated attack on individuals within nation states. And since it's happening in different countries across the world, it's clear <coughs> that this attack is orchestrated by pan-global globalist uh, people and organizations. But it's very clear now that we're being attacked. And of course, this attack is to create chaos and breakdown in society so that people are running around like headless chickens and they don't know what to do. So I just wanted to focus the audience a little bit there because this news is really very much focusing on what is being done to us. So sorry, Alex, carry on. That, that was a very welcome elucidation. And the next slide, but one will give people more of the uh, the what to do in this situation. But the first slide here is from Britain. Uh, people will be aware that England and Wales as a policing jurisdiction has a police complaints mechanism that's gone through many stages. It what used to be the IPCC. It's now the IOPC. Uh, now, an obscure specialist title, Emergency Services News, reported last week that the IOPC, rather like the, poli the Polish police in a different context, is going to have to launch an investigation into its own boss. Uh, because Michael Lockwood, the boss of the Independent Office for Police Conduct, has become the subject of a criminal investigation as it's emerged that he may have uh, had sex with a teenage girl in the 1980s, an underage teenage girl. Uh, reports are, says Emergency Services News, that he privately informed a Home Office, that's Britain's Interior Ministry official, the oversight of the police, uh, about the allegation on the 4th of November, and that his own executives were first told about the allegations in October. Uh, not much has come out there since. Uh, but what's the, uh, the antidote? Certainly not an anecdote, but an antidote. Well, Beryl Baxter has paid us what I regard as the, the accolade of the year on Twitter, saying, when I was a child, the news was full of analysis of the situations being reported. In a way, Brian, all we're doing is remembering what the BBC was like in the 80s and trying to live up to that standard. She adds, how accurate that was is anyone's guess. I agree, Beryl. I watch UK column news now, she says, and I hear in-depth analyses of situations totally ignored by the mainstream, which we'll hear more of in Debbie's segments today as well. Um, here's something interesting from Romania from a viewer. Again, something totally uh, ignored by most people, but we have many viewers in many interesting countries. Our viewer here says, uh, the Romanian High Court of Appeals, which is supreme in Romanian law here, rejected on the 16th of November the government's appeal regarding the illegality of the prolongation of COVID emergency bill. This ruling is definitive and it makes Romania the only European country where the justice system is officially rejecting the globalist's agenda. <clears throat> I'll leave the details on screen for those who can freeze it. It will be in the show notes by perhaps tomorrow at latest for people to follow these links. But here you are, the state of alert in Romania as the highest court in the land, the Court of Cassation and Justice has now deemed this that state of alert or emergency was illegally extended and also using uh, uh, vaccine passes, green certificate, that was equally illegal. The government has been found against by a European Union member state. Um, we're going to see a couple of rather horrid clips now as uh, to what governments are doing to push jabs on children this Christmas, the first from New Jersey. Dear Santa, I don't want games. 
I don't want toys. Just get me the COVID vaccine. This holiday season, there's no better gift than peace of mind. Get vaccinated today. Visit COVID19.nj.gov. No comment on that, Brian. Um, well, I, but let's I, go. Yeah, I'm wincing. Too. I'm wincing at that one. It is so vile. I, I, yeah. yeah, words fail me. Uh, it really is. But let's in a moment roll uh, in the other one. I'll just set it up. Uh, for background on this court case we're about to see a clip from, you can look at Aaron Siri's blog. That His surname is spelled S-I-R-I. Uh, he's uh, an attorney representing ICANN uh, in a case that some of you will know about. At this point, he's cross-examining Dr. Catherine, that's Catherine with a K and a Y, Dr. Catherine Edwards, on the level of her independence as she was brought on to uh, evaluate, so-called independently, the safety of Pfizer's stage three trials for it, the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID jab. But isn't it true that directly before becoming a member of the independent data safety monitoring board of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, you were an advisor to Pfizer? Pfizer pays me to evaluate the safety of their vaccines because I'm an expert. So I do get paid to do the work that I've been doing, but I've been doing the work conscientiously and comprehensively. My question was, before you became a member of the independent data safety monitoring board Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Isn't it true that you were separately, before you held that independent position, you were an advisor to Pfizer? Yes, sir, but I think what you're presuming is that because I've been an advisor makes me on their dole or makes me uh, going to say what they want me to say. That has, is not and has never been a part of my being. I say what I believe based on my expertise. So you don't think that financial incentives can sway people's judgment at all? It does not sway my judgment, sir. Why bother having an independent data safety monitoring board? Why doesn't Pfizer just have some of its employees on it? Because we are independent. <clears throat> Meaning folks who were never advisors to Pfizer. We are independent from Pfizer in this assessment. When is independence not independence? When it's a lovely sweet granny who says that she would never do the wrong thing for money. Um, this one I'm going to pay out, play out privately because the soundtrack is, uh, is very jarring in the context. But let's just bring it on screen. This is from the city of Vienna. Vienna City Council, capital of Austria, of course, uh, has used public funds to put this out. If you start rolling the clip, it is... Uh, uh, a teenage girl at a taxi rank. The banner says, uh, latest in from the taxi rank. She gets in on the passenger seat and a rather scary uh, figure uh, actually abducts her, locks the doors and takes her off to the nearest jab center. And the strap line at the end is Booster with an A at the end, which is the name of that soft toy mascot. Booster will be only too glad to take you to the jab center. Uh, staying in Europe for the very end of my segment, Politico is reporting that Ursula von der Leyen, one of the three presidents of Europe, the president of the European Commission in her case, uh, is now under pressure from more sides than, than uh, just her own commission. There are already bodies of the EU, the Court of Auditors and the, uh, the European Public Prosecutor sniffing around her text messages to Albert Bourla and the lack of transparency. But if you tap that again, you will see that uh, very recently, just last Friday, 
European Union member states met in the context of the European Council, a separate body representing the individual governments that, that founded the EU by treaty. And the deputy perm rep for Belgium, Pierre Cartovel, very senior in the purse string holding ranks of the EU, says we really would like to know what was promised to Pfizer, and BioNTech Pfizer, uh, the Irish health minister, Stephen Donnelly, Donnelly no friend of, of COVID freedom, uh, has also pointed out that the lack of transparency around these negotiations could provide fuel for misrepresentation. He's taking the more um, uh, disinformationly angle, even if the COVID jab uh, uh, mass buying was, as he would put it, prudent and justified. So even if it's only because their feet are being held to the fire, the EU's individual member states are now probably uh, about to cut from the line loose over this uh, rather interesting back-channel negotiations with Pfizer-BioNTech to buy so many million doses. Uh, Alex, thank you very much for that. In fact, there was a little image to come in over the top of that last slide. Let's bring it in. I could just mm -hmm. about read it on my monitor here, but I I, I quite liked it. It's got a Pfizer, uh, a child holding up a board with a Pfizer uh, logo on it, and it's got lots of text redacted, and the, uh, the headline is Black Lines Matter which I thought this is a great. clip that <laughs> Christian Terhesh, the Romanian member of the European Parliament, uh, waved this uh, redacted document uh, at the cameras. So long term viewers will know about this. You might notice, Brian, since you lived in the Netherlands, that these are Dutch police, uh, because this is, if I'm not, not mistaken, Pfizer's headquarters in the Netherlands uh, with a police presence outside it that's having that rather apt protest put in. Final one from me before we go over to Debbie, the real health expert. The Guardian is replying, and you should read Vanessa's recent article about this on UK Column uh, about Canadian euthanasia, uh, that Canada is delaying the right to MAID, physician-assisted death for the mentally ill, the broadening that we are so concerned about. Uh, an assistant professor um, of a relevant branch of law who's moved from Oxford to Leiden here in the Netherlands called Yuan Li Chu has actually pointed out that, uh, or campaigned for the Guardian to give him an apology. In May, uh, when he was being misquoted by The Guardian, he said that their holding body, the Scott Trust, had decided that social murder, uh, as Friedrich Engels called it in the 19th century, is good. It's to their eternal shame, says Dr. Chu, and it will be their burden to bear. Now, The Guardian has come up with a headline on screen in December, so Dr. Chu has added uh, uh, to his previous comments and saying, after accusing me of disinformation and pointedly ignoring the entire issue that is liquidating the mentally ill for seven months, the Guardian has finally deigned to take notice of the ongoing Canadian debate on euthanasia, although ignoring all the scandals that have emerged recently. Uh, in retweeting this, one gentleman, Alexander Rykin, said, what a terrible report by The Guardian. They've had no interview with any disability organisation or people with disabilities. They had no interview or mention of any psychiatrist who was sceptical of medical assistance in dying or met the mentally ill. They had no interviews with anyone directly impacted, like actual patients. Talk about misinformation. But Brian, I thought UK Column was the misinformation. Uh, well, certainly not. Um, what, what we have uh, been able to show, actually, I think over many years, Alex, is that the so-called newspapers of record in UK um, who parade themselves as, as being beyond reproach and nothing but the truth uh, are clearly failing. They are history. They are not to be trusted. But uh, thank you for that very comprehensive section. And yes, you've given an overview of the madness um, which is emerging across the world. Let's focus in now on UK. And Debbie, you're going to take us into the madness around health in UK. Yeah, and you know, as you quick collapse, breakdown, uh, every, every, everything you can possibly think of is going wrong. Um, but first of all, before I start on this segment, I just want to give, because it does link into this segment, um, 
for people that don't know, there's an organisation, Doctors for Patients UK. Now, they have just issued a press release this morning, and I'm so sorry, but it came in too late for us to be able to include it on the news. But these are um, many doctors in the UK who are finally now standing up and talking about their concerns with regards to the mRNA jab, um, with regards to pregnant women and children. So they've just put out a press release and please do give them some support because, you know, they are standing up now and they are speaking out. So you can find them on doctorsforpatientsuk.com. That's doctorsforpatientsuk.com. And of course, they follow the ethos, do no harm, which brings me nicely into patient safety because as many people remember, Jeremy Hunt, um, he founded Patient Safety Watch. But now that he's chancellor, he's put James Titcombe, who's a, a campaigner, basically, um, in charge. And they've just released their National State Patient Safety Report 2022. And I'm going to let people freeze the screen to have a look at it, because bear in mind, this is before all the strikes. This, this came out about a month ago. And we can see there, for example, 237 million medication errors leading to 1,700 deaths a year, 132,000 staff vacancies currently at the time of print, there are more now, uh, for healthcare staff, 41% of maternity services are inadequate, and 2020-2021, 7.9 billion was forked out on clinical negligence incidents. So this report's come out, and I'd urge everybody to go and have a look at it, but how does that play in with today? Because I was not surprised, um, but I was alarmed to hear that last night we'd actually been officially informed that the NHS is now no longer, well, can now longer, no longer guarantee patient safety. And I mean, we did say that this was going to, we've got concerns and we've had concerns over patient safety for a very, very long time. But as the paramedics are going on strike, it seems that people are saying, you know, don't play sports, don't go out, wrap yourself up in cotton wool because there's going to be nobody to take you to hospital. And when you do get to hospital, there's going to be no guarantee of whether you're safe. And we have been saying this for a very long time on the column and our concerns of patient safety and nurses and doctors concerns on patient safety. So to just clarify with regards to the ambulance strikes that are happening today, the situation is different in every single area. And I took a couple of screenshots from the BBC News last night just to show you and indicate to you where different criteria comes in. So for some people in some areas, it will only be literally patients in cardiac arrest, dead patients, patients that are no longer breathing that will be getting a 999 blue light ambulance. People that have had strokes and heart attacks will probably be put into category two. Now, as again, I say this, this varies in Welsh ambulance. It's a slightly different picture. So every area is different, but please bear in mind that if you have a heart attack or if you have a stroke, you've got that golden hour. So we really do need to get people into hospital as quickly as possible. And um, already people are falling over, tripping, slipping, fractured necks of femurs and as you saw there in the previous slide a man had to be attached to a plank an 89 year old man was strapped to a plank and he was put in his grandson's builder's van and he was taken to A&E that was the only way they were going to get him there Debbie, so Debbie if I can 
Debbie, if I can just sorry, uh, gone, Brian. interject, sorry to do that to you, but I had to ask you a question this morning. And, and that was, it appeared that, that if you were dead, you got priority with an ambulance and you had to explain why this bizarre situation um, occurs. Would you like to do that for our viewers? Yeah, so as I understand it, what happens when you dial 999, the first question you get is, is the patient breathing? If you say yes, that automatically lowers the category in some areas, not all areas, but in some areas. If you say no, the patient's not breathing, so technically they've died and they need resuscitation. If they're not breathing, then you will get a 999 blue light ambulance. So in some areas, yes, sadly, I have to say that you have to be not breathing with your heart not beating before you'll get an ambulance. And of course, it is so important to get an ambulance an emergency treatment for children with sepsis, for emergency maternity cases, um, and for strokes and heart attacks, and obviously road traffic accidents, you know? So I was alarmed last night to see that, um, you know, we've got trusts up and down the country now that are saying they're now in critical incidents. They cannot take any other patients. We've got paramedics that are saying that this is hell, that they're arriving only to find the patient dead. And they're having to spend their time consoling relatives who have been absolutely be beyond themselves, waiting for an ambulance, knowing that it is probably going to come too late. So, yeah, this is this is really bad times and it's going to collapse even more. So I just wanted to keep everybody up to date on the ambulance strike that's happening right, and, today. And there are more to come. Sorry, Debbie, I, I just want to add to that. And we are told constantly that we're living in the UK in 2022. We're in a super advanced country where we're going to lead the world in uh, AI and all matters to do with technology. But in December 2022, we can't get an ambulance to somebody. This is not a breakdown of incompetence. It's not incompetence within the NHS and the ambulance service. This is the result of the destruction of the NHS and the ambulance service from the inside. We're not going to be able to give all the detail in today's news, but we just want to emphasise that if you're working in the NHS, we understand the problem. This is the result of an attack on the NHS to destroy it from the inside. I think we need to reinforce that for people to think about. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely right. This is complete and utter collapse, but it's being done on purpose. You know, you've got, I, I, I've actually got to the point now where I've said that the UK is no longer a developed country. Um, are we a third world country? Maybe not even a third world country because there's certainly not a health system that the majority of people can access at all. So we're completely devoid of a health system. And then, of course, you've got the impact of Strep A as well going on. So I just want to quickly highlight Strep A in the fact that schools are, are they closing down, having deep cleans, um, cancelling nativities as strep A rates appear to go up. Now, I don't believe we've had any more than, thank goodness, than 19 deaths. But still, you know, we must be mindful of the fact that many children are, are seeing cases, we're seeing cases of scarlet fever and all this antibiotic shortage is playing into the whole panic for pa parents. And we're hearing of security guards sitting in paediatric uh, A&Es because they are simply overwhelmed with children with sore throats, um, or rashes. 
So one thing that I did want to highlight was that there has been a lot of talk about a link between the flu, the nasal mist for children, and the likelihood of them suffering from strep A afterwards. Now, anecdotally from doctors, I am hearing a lot of children presenting with strep A after they've had the flu mist. But a fact check, as you, as you, if you just flash back to that screen, because there is an academic paper that, um, that does pick that up. But as you can see, fact check have been out very, very quickly, full fact, to say, no, there's absolutely nothing in this story. And even worse now, the UKHSA and the NHS are actually saying to parents, please take your children to have a flu and the nasal flu mist. Um, two and three-year-olds, they're saying if you have the nasal flu mist, it, it might actually stop your child from getting strep A. Um, I'm absolutely horrified at this. And I would, as a, as a parent, on a personal opinion, I would be stepping back from any type of vaccine or any type of medication for children at the moment. So just to warn you that that's the story going at the moment. There's also another condition. Now, I just want to highlight this very, very quickly. Um, but you'll see um, on the left there is the Pfizer um, serious adverse reaction data dump. Now, on page 36, you'll see a condition called pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders associated with strep A. So I just want to highlight that PANDAS, as it's known, that's the acronym, this is an acute onset condition. It can happen straight after strep A, or it can happen up to six months after. Some of the behavioral changes are quite alarming because it has physical and psychological behavioral changes. So you could see unusual movements, tics, joint pain, sleeplessness, behavior change, memory impairments in children and also catatonic state, so it can be quite serious. And, and I'm just throwing it out there because I know that we are upping the children's mental health. Um, the whole priority for children's mental health is now rising. And we're going to see, are we going to see an epidemic of children presenting with mental health more so than we are now? And is it going to be blamed on lockup or are we going to see more children with disorders and conditions associated with vaccines, strep A, etc. So just a heads up for what might be coming down the line. Okay, I'll just come in there um, again, Debbie, because a really excellent article has just been posted on UK Column. What are we doing to our children? Um, Alex, you've, um, you've spent a bit of time with this article. It's very comprehensive. It's got a lot of detail, but absolutely it's warning about dangers to children's health as a result of a lot of factors. Just give us a few uh, few seconds on this article and, and uh, let's encourage people to go and read it. Are you muted? People should always go down the whole of the homepage, ukcolumn.org, very often because we increasingly put out articles and blogs. Um, but Hugh McCarthy is an educationalist from Northern Ireland, now retired. This is his second piece for us. This is but the first of a four-part series. He intends here to bring together all the evidence that shows that, in two words, they knew the harm was foreseeable. And he starts in part one of his series with his own cherished area of education, but he's going to go on to other areas in which Britain has knowingly damaged its children. 
Okay, Alex, thank you for that. And I'll just say to the audience that we're really delighted by the number of people who are now coming forward uh, to the UK column with quality material. This is very important. Many of you are the experts. So if you feel that you've got an article or information that you want to give us or share with us, please do come forward. So Debbie, back to you. Let's get on to who's really culpable for what's happening. And of course, the MHRA must be um, very high on that list indeed. Uh, well, they're pretty much top of my list, yes. And it came to my attention, you know, as we're pushing on through December, we've got the Christmas holidays coming. I didn't get my normal invitation. Um, you know, I don't wait for a Christmas card from the MHRA, but I do wait for an invitation to the next board meeting. And it was very, uh, very late in coming. In fact, it didn't come at all. So... I had to email Dame June, uh, Alison Cave and Stephen Lightfoot directly to ask them um, where was the board meeting link and was it going to be held in public or are they planning on holding it in private and do they think that I've forgotten and I was a bit worried because of the Christmas holidays that we might not be having an MHRA board meeting. Anyway, very pleased to say that the MHRA have replied and they are going to be putting the link up. In fact, they have put the link up today. So please join me for the MHRA board meeting on January the 17th. Um, very, very important to be there. And as you know, the last board meeting, they haven't even put it up on YouTube yet, but we've had it up on the column. It's called Champagne on Ice. And um, it's still up, I think, I believe it is on the front page still. And if not, you can find it on the search bar. Okay. But going <laughs> on, sorry. Sorry, Brian, going on about the MHRA, I just want to highlight and please, for people that have got members of the family who are pregnant, thinking of becoming pregnant, this is going to be a really, really important segment for you. So please watch carefully. We know that the MHRA and the government have always been putting out the advice for pregnant women um, and breastfeeding women to take the COVID-19 injection despite there being no safety data on it. We now have a warning over eating salmon this Christmas. Pregnant women should be very careful about eating salmon, particularly Lidl's salmon. Um, a couple of theirs has been recalled because of an outbreak of listeria. So, and this was going back to my day, we were told as pregnant women uh, to be very careful of what we ate. Um, and listeria was a problem. It can lead to miscarriage. So this is extremely concerning, but we're warning on listeria, but we're not warning on an experimental injection. Now, thanks to an amazing UK column viewer, and Raoul, thank you so much for this, I managed to catch up with Dame June Rain and Baroness Cumberledge, who would have thought that, at the Health um, and Social Care Committee last week on December the 13th. Now, this I didn't know this was going on, so when Raoul contacted me to tell me, look now, I couldn't believe it, but you can find it on Parliament TV. And this was a debate about sodium valproate and mesh. Okay, so um, I'd like to highlight that, that it was sodium valproate and mesh. However, it brought up some very interesting questions. But let's just remind ourselves of June Rain two years ago and what she said then about the vaccine. Listen carefully to hear where it's gone from. Listen to hear the word animal. Just listen out for it. When a vaccine goes from initial creation to being ready for the public, a very thorough process indeed is followed. 
COVID-19 vaccines are first of all tested in the laboratory. Then they're tested in human volunteers in studies called clinical trials. These tests help confirm how the vaccines work and help us to evaluate their safety and effectiveness. In the UK, all trials are legally required to have approval from us at the MHRA so that they are scientifically sound. All the data from trials, as well as all other data, are given to us for scientific evaluation and approval. COVID-19 vaccines will be monitored rigorously for safety once they are in use. This is the same as for any vaccine or medicine, it will be no different. There are responsibilities on the companies who make the vaccines for safety monitoring, and we have responsibility too to continuously evaluate all products in the UK. We have a robust and proactive safety monitoring strategy in place for COVID-19 vaccines. You and your healthcare professional can report any suspected side effects through our tried and trusted yellow card scheme. And we supplement this form of safety monitoring with analysis of data on vaccine usage and using anonymous electronic healthcare records linked to other healthcare data, all in place to proactively monitor safety. Doesn't that, doesn't that just make you feel warm and fuzzy? And, and you didn't hear the word animal because it wasn't mentioned because these injections have gone from laboratory to human beings. And the data that she's talking about is your data. So just think, just remember what she said just then, because when I caught up with her and Baroness Cumberledge at the Health and Safety Committee meeting, it was very interesting. There is, I really would advise people to go and look at this clip because it's a much longer clip. So I'm just going to put it in context because the first clip I'm going to show you is Baroness Cumberledge responding to a question with regards to the Patient Safety Commissioner, Henrietta Hughes. Basically, what she's saying is, if you're saying, Baroness Cumberledge, that Henrietta Hughes hasn't really got a department, because that's what was being said earlier in the committee meeting, if you're saying she hasn't got resources, if you're saying that she hasn't got any help, is it fit for purpose? So just listen to what Baroness Cumberledge said just last week with regards to the Patient Safety Commissioner. The reason why I ask, and I'll hand straight back to the chair, is four people in this area does not seem to be enough. So if she's got the resources to recruit more, all well and good. But if she's going to be limited to three or four people, it really is giving lip service to what, they are, what you've recommended and what needs to be achieved. So if she will be given the resources to have more people to do this role, all well and good, but I just wanted to make clear is are the resources enough so that she can do the best job that she can do? No, not now. Right. It has obviously got to grow. It's got to be a really sustainable expert organisation that's working with patients, working with the healthcare system, working with uh, the regulators. You, you know the system, it's huge. And it's also the private sector and so on. So it's an enormous task. And it's very interesting that Scotland have just invited me up 
to look at what they're going to do with a patient safety commissioner. And I think we're on a roll. And I honestly think that we will see in the future other countries say this is a very good idea. It's something we ought to follow, as Scotland is doing. So there you have it. Baroness Cumberledge said quite clearly, no, uh, there weren't enough resources in place for the Patient Safety Commissioner. So we must assume that the Patient Safety Commissioner at present isn't fit for purpose. What alarmed me most is the next clip that you're going to see. And I promise we will try to get this up as a segment on, on Twitter on UK column snippets, because this is a very, very important piece of film, okay? June Rain, uh, she's answered our questions. The questions that were posed to her were, were, were sorry, I'm so fired up about this clip, I cannot even begin to tell you because I think everybody should share it. She's talking in the meeting about fetal valparate syndrome, and this is a syndrome that affects women through generations. So if a woman has had valparate in pregnancy, it won't just affect their children, it'll affect their children's children's children. Now at the meeting, this was a very big point of, of what was being discussed. And afterwards, what you're going to see now is Dr. Caroline Johnson, who's actually the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Mental Health. She is a paediatrician and she's asking June Rain a very, very important question. Please listen very carefully. Epileptic women may need to take medicines, but there are other people with, say, Crohn's disease or forms of rheumatoid arthritis, for example, who may also need to take medication during pregnancy. The long-term effects or effects on the babies may not be completely clear. What, um, what work are you doing to ensure that there's um, proper oversight of that so we don't end up here in 10 or 15 years' time looking at a different type of medication having similar effects? The whole issue of understanding the benefits and risks of medicines in pregnancy is something the agencies very committed to and has a number of activities underway. This is because since thalidomide, medicines haven't been studied in pregnancy and there's often a gap in our knowledge, quite an important gap, not just around safety but around dose and so forth. And so we've got a number of activities underway to actually ensure that trials are done that appropriately gather that kind of information so evidence-based judgments can be made. We're looking to the revision of our clinical trials legislation to start to push at that barrier to change, much as we did with the legislation for children's medicines. So there you have it. There has been no research on medicines, pregnant women, since thalidomide. She's answered all of our questions and boldly says it there in front of a select committee, and yet in the next breath is advising pregnant women to take an untested, novel, experimental injection. I am absolutely speechless, Brian. Uh, well, Debbie, clearly we are the animals. Um, we're going to forget animals, cruel as that testing is. We're simply either going to test on people, children, pregnant mums, or we're not going to do it at all. And it's not a problem. Or we may have forgotten to do it, but it's still not a problem. Um, this is incredible. These people need to be brought into a court to be properly questioned about what they're doing. Because either it's incompetence, and I refuse to believe that, I believe that this is calculated. 
this is calculated they know what they're doing they know what the risks are they know they're damaging people but they simply don't care because they think they are beyond the law June Rain clearly said it you know she was head of pharmacovigilance before she was CEO of the MHRA she clearly said it <laughs> there has been no research with pregnant women since thalidomide so what what would anybody why would anybody believe that anything is safe clearly it's not safe she said it there and we need to expose that that piece of film and that footage and show everybody who's considering to have a baby or is pregnant at the moment and is getting frightened and thinking that they might need to have an injection please let them see that video first and make their own make their own judgment and come to their own decision okay debbie thank you for that uh, you've got a couple more slides here i'm just going to encourage you to move through these quite quickly because we've still got quite a lot of material to cover and uh, we, we we want to get our slides in today a lot of important things so uh, take us on to catastrophic contagion well i think mark mentioned it um, on monday and i just wanted to highlight it because here again we've got the next event 201 only this came out in october 2022 um, a load of countries, including Rwanda, uh, a load of countries, and the country of Bill Gates. Um, this is a, a scenario with the John Hopkins University, which of course produced SPARS pandemic 2025 to 2028. And we have all of these countries and Bill Gates. So I'm beginning to think Bill Gates has maybe got his own country somewhere that we don't know of. There's a very, very short video um, on catastrophic contagion. It's the new thing coming, uh, the new pandemic. How do we get people to trust us. It seems to want to create more mortality in younger people. So that's what they were looking at. But here's a very short uh, video clip just to show people the overview. Officials in two Latin American countries alerted the WHO of several outbreaks of a new infectious disease that's mysteriously appearing across the region. Severe Epidemic Enterovirus Respiratory Syndrome 2025. Over the past six weeks alone, there have been 500 confirmed or suspected cases reported. The virus could cause a severe pandemic if early containment and mitigation efforts are not successful. The pandemic in this type of situation and trend would be a risk for the global health security. Pandemics are inherently political, financial, and so much broader. We have not spoken on the leadership in country. And I think that we need to be also very careful. We cannot decide a lot of things without the leaders be involved and agree on that. There is no substitute for national leadership. It's important to support the local response or the national response. Training those that are in these areas first, enabling them with the tools, protecting them, and if needs be, regional solidarity first. At this stage, communication is key, and communication should include not just scientists with data, but also social, religious, and political leaders. Trust. This is an essential issue. And trust was broken among countries, between populations and healthcare systems, between healthcare systems and governments. I'm very sorry to say that 
So that was just a little uh, overview of catastrophic contagion. Of course, when you see enteric that was mentioned there, that means tummy. So we're going to be seeing diarrhea. Well, that's what they were looking at, conditions that would involve vomiting, sickness, diarrhea, etc. So, yeah. And also, uh, very quickly to highlight, if anybody's opted out of NHS sharing of data, which I, I have, um, in through my letterbox last Friday, yet another bowel test kit. And this time it doesn't say, please, will you? It says, we will send you, you know, not would you like to do a test? No, we will send you a kit at great cost to the NHS, I'm sure, because thousands and thousands of these are going uh, to be sent through our letterboxes. Mine will be going in the bin. But clearly um, it's test, 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 lots of healthy people. And then if we find out you're sick, we're ever so sorry, you'll probably be 8 million on the waiting list. So just to let you know that these are still... These are still popping through the letterboxes. The other things I wanted to do was very quickly highlight a few stories that I'd noticed coming up. Um, that this, of course, the situation we're seeing of complete and utter devastation within our health service and our economy is going on all over the world. Financial Times reported that COVID's rapid advance in China's cities sparked disruption and staff shortages, also medicine shortages. Um, we've got um, also people saying that these strikes are keeping elderly people in hospital. And that's what we said right from the beginning, that ambulances, um, they don't just take patients to the front door of the hospital. They also take patients from the back door of the hospital. So we've got a log jam going on. And um, I just wanted to highlight an email that was sent to you, Brian, um, and also one that was sent to David. Um, you might want to read out your one, Brian, because you asked me to include this. Um, uh, it was sent from a viewer, Lucy. Right, okay. It says, hello, I thought you and Debbie would be interested in the following information. My sister has recently moved back to Suffolk and went to register her, herself and her son at a local doctor's surgery. However, when she read the contract you have to sign to be registered, she was shocked and disgusted. The point five uh, read as follows. I agree to have all immunisations recommended by the Department of Health unless the doctor advises me that there is a medical contraindication. You're not allowed to register with this doctor's surgery unless you agree to all of the points on their contract. Um, so understandably, this person didn't go on to do it. Uh, pretty incredible dictatorship in the GP surgery. Yeah, absolutely. And the letter on the right was um, sent to David from John Mason, MSP, and quite alarmingly, I won't read it all out, but the last line says it all really. And I am convinced that the vaccines have been a tremendous breakthrough enabled by God. So David asked me if I'd include that. So pretty shocking. OK, well, just end quite a heavy segment there with uh, 
uh, these memes, uh, Debbie. So we've got three of them. Shall, shall I read them out for you? Yes, do, please. OK, uh, well, top left, we're into the Simpsons and on the uh, lectures being given and on the uh, on the board, it says all drugs are safe and effective when they're making billions of dollars. Um, then we've got, uh, I can't remember the actor's name there, but we've got, uh, you can't be an anti-vaxxer if it isn't really a vaccine. Think about that one. And the final one, we've got a, a lady with a face mask. She's having a syringe gun held to her head. And the uh, comment is the manufacturer is not responsible. The government is not responsible. The vaccinating doctor is not responsible. But if you are not vaccinated, you are irresponsible, which I think is a pretty good one. OK, let's move on through. And as always, we'd like to say a big thank you to our supporters. Uh, and that is a very big thank you. And as we've mentioned several times over the last few weeks, we're going to have some very good news for, for our supporters in particular about events in the next year. Um, we're keeping that a little bit under our hat at the moment. Uh, we'd like to encourage people to buy from the shop. There's still a lot of very good products there. And yes, it is a problem of the postal strikes, but if you buy from the UK column, you do help and support us. So please think about doing that. And the other thing is please do share our material because the whole objective of the UK column is to spread information far and wide. And uh, I'd just like to say we've got a lovely email here from Elizabeth said thank you to everyone at UK Column. Wish you all a very happy Christmas. Thank you for helping me to understand the world we now live in. I'm blown away by all your work and struggle to keep up. To Debbie, <coughs> excuse me, I am a, <laughs> a Cornish pixie. If you are, you are amazing and brave for being a nurse and living with your sewage problem. I, like a lot of people, are struggling right now, but thank you all for giving me something to look forward to each week. Kind regards and all the best for 2023. Well, I'm not sure some of the material we report is to be looked forward to, but if that's the positive effect we're having, we're delighted to see that. And Alex, over to you. You've got some other reports and mentions here. We have such an interview pipeline that we can't even plug on the main news all the worthy interviews. So again, go to the homepage as often as you can. Here, Dr. Simon Elmer of Architects for Social Housing answers part of the reason why dear Elizabeth and so many others are struggling to live in Britain. Namely, they can't get and retain suitable housing uh, on the budget thereon. So uh, he discusses with David Scott the artificially created shortage and the deliberately awful housing. Uh, and the title of this is Housing, COVID-19 and the Emergence of a New Fascism, because Dr. Elmer has written a whole political philosophy on that, uh, which David would like to return to. Uh, the next slide has already been half covered, but the right-hand side uh, of that slide is just to tell people, oh yes, you've adapted the slide, thank you, tell people who don't already read it that down towards the bottom of the homepage in the comment section is a rolling weekly blog, the Debbie Evans blog, this is a Christmas special. There may, one be, may well be one next week because Debbie is a, an inveterate uh, producer of excellent blogging material. Uh, but this one is uh, rounds off the year nicely. Uh, and she even quotes uh, the Epistle to the Galatians at the end, which I thought was a very suitable touch. Uh, from a German dissident writing under a pseudonym, uh, the crisis of Western political systems. Uh, the screenshot there is Justin Trudeau saying, because it's 2015, when asked why he was going to redefine marriage for the first time in world history. Uh, and so uh, showing an incredibly insouciant uh, facial expression together with his whole uh, cabinet in Ottawa there. Uh, this is about how we went back to slavery 
uh, in Britain and America. And just to circle back to the beginning of Debbie's segment, she said that many people are now defecting from the uh, mainstream COVID narrative. The latest uh, you'll find if you go down to the, the stories we're watching uh, area at the very bottom of the homepage, because we've linked through to the blogger Igor Chudov, who's picked up on a Queensland paper, The Chronicle, uh, noting that a former president of the Australian Medical Association, who's also a former member of parliament in Canberra, has now defected from COVID narrative. Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. And um, we're just going to make an on-the-spot decision because we do think today's news is very important. So I'm going to let the um, segments run through because uh, they all uh, are part of a comprehensive picture. Um, so we're going to let the news run on a little bit longer than normal, but this will mean that we won't be doing an extra time today. But uh, Friday, we're going to have a very special lineup, as we'll mention at the end of the news. So uh, a big thank you here to one of our viewers who said, had I paid attention to Lincolnshire Live, which I hadn't, uh, but a fascinating little story here. Man says he's facing a staggering £7,000 energy bill after heat pump change. Uh, government offers 5,000 to people who switch to so-called green heating systems. Uh, so this is the man, a company director from Hollaxton. He started using the system in July and he said the, equi the equipment cost £17,000, uh, but there was the installation, so add another 10000 at least. We moved back into the house in July when the weather was warm in the summer months. Um, in the summer months, our monthly bills are roughly £280 per month. Spring and autumn will be about £500 a month and winter months about £850. Uh, then a yearly total will be about £6,000 to £7,000. My electric deal ends in March, so my tariff will increase. Uh, we could therefore be paying, well, I really don't want to think about it. So he's really worried. And then he says only the stupendously wealthy can afford the figure in my head and the joint incomes of me and my wife are nowhere near. When asked about the positive aspects of investing in the air pump, Steve added, I could say we're using some green non-polluting energy and Greta Thunberg will be pleased. So there's some harsh reality about what green energy really means uh, for your home. But uh, let's go back to 2015 now and have a look at a UK column article. And uh, key to this was uh, a picture embedded image with Peter Hitchens who had a quote, our headline was downhill to the British dictatorship unless we withdraw our consent. And Peter Hitchens was quoted as saying, we're on the verge of founding Britain's first thought police using the excuse of terrorism, whose main victim is considered thought. Theresa May's Home Office is making a law which attacks free expression in this country as it has never been attacked before. So UK column warning, Peter Hitching warning. Um, let's just look at first at what the BBC considers justice is. And the BBC has been getting very excited uh, because a 97-year-old German woman um, has been given a two-year suspended sentence for being a secretary uh, in a camp in Germany. Um, she is accused of a, a number of things, but essentially partaking in everything that the camp did because she was a secretary. I think there are a lot of questions to be asked about this article, but the BBC 
has a very comprehensive article um, all about the Holocaust and of course how dreadful this 97 year old lady is and they would appear to be very pleased that she has been brought before the courts. So contrast the BBC with this story uh, which many people flagged up for us, a lady called Isabel Vaughan Spruce, 45, charged with breaching the exclusion zone near uh, abortion clinic in um, Birmingham. Uh, West Midlands police spokesman said Isabel uh, Vaughan Spruce, age 45, from Geraldine Road, Malvern, was arrested on December the 6th and subsequently charged on December the 15th with four counts of failing to comply with the public space protection order. She was bailed to appear at Birmingham Magistrates Court on February the 2nd, 2023. So the illustrious, uh, I've put the, this as a quote from the leader, of course, it was a spokesperson uh, from uh, Birmingham City Council, but ultimately the leader must be responsible for safety for statements made. So the statement was, our community safety team are aware of recent activities around Robert Cl Clinic in Station Road, Kings Norton. We're working with residents and West Midlands Police to monitor the situation as the remit of the PSPO cannot be extended unless there is evidence to support the need. So don't worry, we're arresting single women to protect society. And what was this lady doing? She was arrested for being inside that exclusion zone and daring to pray. Um, so apparently the police received a complaint from a passerby who suspected she was praying silently in her mind. Uh, very quickly, Alex, I don't know whether you'd like to comment on that. Did somebody really complain or uh, how was this uh, arrest orchestrated? I'm very suspicious. Uh, but it appears the state is frightened of prayer. Why would that be, do you think? Well, to get nearer the answer, you would have to think of the only other country on the face of the planet that employs police to spot people silently praying in public, and that would be the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or North Korea, to most of us, who, as Christian supporters uh, of, of the persecuted churches there have well known, uh, go out looking in public for people who are suspiciously silent or still or have their eyes closed on park benches or even standing on street corners. Uh, now, this lady in Birmingham was actually... Uh, photographed and had uh, police confront her in her interview with uh, are you praying here right so somebody took these photographs police intelligence hard to say uh, I have while we've been talking put back on the comment section of our homepage a recent blog by Liz Pilgrim about this because no prey zones have come are coming to all the British Isles jurisdictions including the Republic of Ireland uh, very quickly uh, in fact in in the months we're talking about now uh, and Liz has written about no prey zones being a challenge for the churches. Uh, it's, it is specifically churches that are being, or Christians that are being targeted here, uh, because they're the people who have the habit of sending out these dangerous lone women uh, to meditate and think and pray, uh, in this case, even standing up. Somebody took those photographs. I'm not sure whether it would have been police or someone allied with the BPAS clinic there, but somebody did it, and then the police got hold of the photograph. Yes. OK, thank you for, for that, Alex. Let's follow the story through. Uh, this is some uh, comment. If we pop uh, that one on the screen, please. Uh, so we've got um, a comment by the lady herself. Censorship zones purport to ban harassment, which is already illegal. Nobody should ever be subject to harassment. 
But what I did was the furthest thing from harmful. I was exercising my freedom of thought, my freedom of religion inside the privacy of my own mind. And uh, she went on to say, it's abhorrently wrong that I was searched. And what she's talking about is a strip search, which of course is a common tactic of the UK police to intimidate and humiliate people they arrest. So this lady was violated in that search effectively. She was arrested, interrogated by police and charged simply for praying in the privacy of her own mind. She said censorship zones purport to ban harassment, which is already illegal, etc. But she goes on to say that it was in her own mind. Nobody should be criminalised for thinking and for praying in a public space in UK. Now, there was some extra comment in the article from this uh, gentleman who was the legal counsel who's now acting for her. And he, he said, Jeremiah went on to say, Isabel's experience should be deeply concerning to all those who believe that our hard fought fundamental rights are worth protecting. It's truly astonishing that the law has granted uh, local authorities such wide and unaccountable discretion that now even thoughts are deemed wrong and can lead to a humili humiliating arrest and a criminal charge. So I think um, at least her legal team appears to be on the case. Uh, but if you have a look at March for Life, which the lady is connected with, uh, this is it. There's some information about abortion here. We just bring up the key bit, the key statement. Since the 1967 Abortion Act was implemented, over 9.5 million lives have been tragically ended in the womb in UK with an annual rate around 200,000. So that's the reality of what the state is protecting. But if you dare pray about it, you're going to be in trouble. But I just wanted to say I was fascinated by the legal team that's now got involved. Um, ADF UK, a faith-based legal advocacy organisation that protects fundamental freedoms. And it appears to be working in the UK and across the world. And uh, uh, a little bit here for, for you, Alex, but I paid attention to the people. We can see Jeremiah second in from the left. Uh, but we had this, this gentleman called Ryan Christopher um, working in the UK. Uh, but uh, he's been a public speaker on issues of philosophy, theology in the public, uh, sorry, in the public square. He talks to the BBC, News at 10, Sky News. Uh, but if you go a little bit further down, um, he, he's a trustee of the Christian Heritage Centre at Stonyhurst. Now, I don't know that whether that means this um, gentleman is something special. What's, what's your take? That is not an organisation I've heard of, but... Uh... Do a bit of doing a bit of a analysis of the lawyers. I, I, the lawyers I, involved. Is it Jesuit? It's Jesuit. I'm pretty sure Thank it's you. Jesuit. Uh, yeah. I'm sure the viewers will take me to task for not being ahead of you there. <laughs> but I was going to make a more general point, and you saw it with the Irish name of the lady uh, on the right-hand side of the last screenshot. Uh, for 50 years now, particularly in the British Isles, but also in the rest of the English-speaking world, um, standing up for anyone who has uh, qualms about abortion has been almost exclusively the preserve of Roman Catholics, and latterly of African and Asian background people in the West. And this is a shameful situation. The native Protestant church uh, in the British Isles, North America, Australasia, has done next to nothing uh, to campaign for freedom. Uh, in our French symposium, uh, equivalent to Doctors for COVID Ethics, which is still on our homepage as well, uh, a brilliant, brilliant young lawyer in Strasbourg called Christophe Paulsen-Logel is another example of this. 
the outfit there is the European Centre for Law and Justice. Um, now this, this really is something that has uh, to change, that uh, Protestants and other non-Roman Catholic believers and people of conscience uh, are going to have to get involved in, in talking about this. One example of a Protestant who does is Richard Lucas, leader of the Scottish Family Party, who in his recent interview with David Scott pointed out that, if I remember this accurately, it is now going through Holyrood, so the Scottish Government is trying to get it through the Scottish Parliament, that a first offence uh, of what was done here uh, by this, uh, this lady from Malvern in Birmingham, Isabel, a first offence would get you several years in jail. Now, I can't remember the details there, but Richard Lucas does say that if you went out and hit an old lady square in the face, you would not get a maximum sentence uh, of, of uh, uh, several years. Right? So you couldn't do that if you tried uh, by being violent to somebody, but you can by praying silently. OK, thank you for that, Alex. Well, where does this uh, lead to if we're now, um, we're now um, arresting people for praying? Let's go back a little bit when uh, Plymouth Live and the UK Column were picking up on the fact that the Royal Navy uh, had said that satanic rituals were now going to be permitted at sea. Uh, so this stems back from 1994. Uh, the UK column also highlighted that within the army, this is going back to 2014, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lawrence Quinn claims the army should part with tradition and no longer have a dominant religion. And they're talking about Christianity. And of course, when we did our research, we found that uh, this gentleman was linked with the National Secular Society. I believe that uh, is correct. Um, and. Um, we have also warned um, in a number of articles and episodes of this psychological attack on the UK. You can't think, you're not allowed to pray, but you can be a practicing Satanist. You can kill children via abortion, but you mustn't protest to save the lives of those unborn children. This is a psychological attack. And Alex Thompson and myself uh, did two episodes explaining some of the background to this in the psychological attack uh, on the United Kingdom. Uh, but of course, it's an attack on the minds of the UK public. We are going to suggest that this is becoming visible, particularly in today's news. Uh, this is one of the key books that started to expose what was going to happen. You can find this as a PDF online. And uh, within this table, uh, it clearly showed that religion was one of the key areas, especially Christianity, that was to be attacked, but also education, media, uh, culture, and even law and order itself. So all of this has come to fruition. Uh, but ultimately, where was it going to go? It was going to go to complete breakdown of society, breakdown of law and order, rioting, street death, psychological collapse. Now, this book was written on the basis uh, that this was policy from the Soviets. Uh, however, when you dig in deeper, you, of course, discover that Russia was subjected to this type of attack itself. And we would suggest that you have to look even deeper to find out who is carrying out the attack. And at that point, Debbie, I'm going to come back to you and say, um, please do this segment, but with a little bit of an eye on the clock, uh, because what you're showing is, again, that within the health system, disruption is the agenda of the day. Yeah, uh, thanks, Brian. And, and yeah, and I think this is the word that we hear all the time, but we're not talking about. So disruption means forcible separation, division, 
uh, broken into pieces, interruption, regular interruptions into regular flow, confusion and disorder. So if anybody wants to look up theory of disruption, it's Professor Christian Schultz. Um, but I wanted to see how does this, how is this playing out in today's world? How are we, how, who are we, who are we looking around at when we're looking at disruption? Everybody, everything's in disruption. And we'll come on to some slides about where we're seeing disruption in general. But I just want to reintroduce people to Dr. James Giordano. Dr. James Giordano is, um, he's a professor of neurology at Georgetown. He's at the Pellegrino Center, the head of the European Brain Project, and, and also DARPA. So he's a very senior neuroscientist. He delivered a lecture in 2017, and bearing in mind this is two, 2017, and what he said was that in this lecture, what he was saying would come true in 60 months, that's six zero. So 60 months from the delivery of the lecture was actually when COVID started. And I just want to throw this out to all of the UK column viewers and listeners, and maybe um, if you're in the chat box, maybe you can give some reaction because he's delivering to a military audience. So this is a military plan that he is delivering. However, when I listen to it, I'm wondering if what he's saying is what is playing out right now. Have a listen and um, please let us know your comments in the chat box afterwards. But listen out for the words morbidity and mortality. Morbidity means getting people sick very quickly so that in the end they die. Mortality means creating death instantly. So just, just be aware of those two words in this next segment and let us know what you think you're hearing and are we seeing that play out today? I'll give it to you very, very briefly. What I do is I either use a drug in very, very low concentrations that may not necessarily be traceable. And again, this is highly doable. You just have to permeate the edge of a drinking vessel or an atmospheric vessel, get the drug on board. It kind of auto-assembles in situ because of nanopharmacology. Very difficult to trace, and it creates a biological downstream effect. Nothing I'm telling you here is sci-fi. It all exists within the medical range and how we're able to treat a variety of neurological disorders targeting the brain, being able to get in there more specifically, affect certain neural cancers, et cetera. And what we can do with some of these drugs is we can also use these techniques that we're learning on the pharmaceutical side to modify certain bugs. And we spoke earlier about a technique that's become very well known, CRISPR-Cas9, that allows us to literally modify bugs in a variety of different ways. So I now may be able to take a relatively harmless microbiological agent, a bacterium or a virus, do some gene editing and make this thing far more morbidly viable, make it far more virulent, and in some cases even make it far more lethal. But I don't want lethality, at least not necessarily. What I want is high morbidity. I want people to complain. So what do I do? I go to Des Moines. Ladies and gentlemen and people on the screen, I have nothing against Des Moines. I lived there for four years. I go to Des Moines. I infect a couple of sentinel cases in Des Moines. I go to Seattle. I infect a couple of cases there. I go to North Carolina. I go to Wisconsin. What I'm doing is I'm using a dispersion methodology to be able to infect sentinel cases with a highly morbid condition. These individuals complain. Again, this is a central nervous system condition. So they're complaining of whatever the bug may do. It'll produce some cascade of neurological and neuropsychiatric signs and symptoms. And then what I do, the real bug that I use is the internet. I take attribution for that. Yes, I'm a terrorist group. And I have done this by infecting with a highly lethal agent and the first signs and symptoms of lethality are X, Y, and Z. These people are really sick with this. 
But then I say, others who are also infected will show subdromal, predromal signs of lethality, and what that will be is anxiety, sleeplessness, agitation. What I've now done is I've got every individual who is diagnostically hypochondriacal, and I've got every individual who's the worried well flooding the public health system, banging on the door. The CDC comes back and says, nonsense, that's not real. I come back and say, that's fake news. And as a consequence of doing that, what I do is I create a schism between the polis and the public health system. I fracture the integrity of trust and reliance upon the population and its government. So is that what's happening now, that people are becoming very, very sick and you're getting huge demands on the public health services all around the world? Because it sounds to me as though what we're experiencing is what he is describing. And just to clarify, the morbidity and mortality is basically the aim is not to kill anybody outright. The last thing anybody wants is for people to be dropping dead all over the place. But they're going to want to make you so sick that your chances of dying are increased. So there's this big difference between morbidity and mortality. And then if we jump forward to disruption, he says, we don't want to create weapons of mass destruction. What we want is a weapon of mass disruption. So if you look in today's world, and I'll just let you flip through these slides as quickly as you want, because everywhere, this is really just to, just to show you, everywhere we're seeing the word disruption. And when you disrupt people, every single one of our lives has been disrupted. And, you know, we're talking, the World Health Organization are talking about disruption. Behavioral science are talking about disruption. The government are talking about disruption. The NHS is disruption. Economic disruption. Disruption puts people into panic, into states of fear. And this is what we're seeing. So they're using these dispersal methods and disruption methods to put us all into absolute fear and chaos. And there again, Brian, where you've said right from the beginning of, of today's news, this is total breakdown. And this is the way with which I believe that they are doing it. Uh, Debbie, thank you very much. My goodness, we could have quite some discussion about the segment that you presented in today's news. We can't do that because it's the news, but we'll see if we can find another slot to do that. I'm going to pass over to you, Alex, and just say seven minutes and uh, to finish off the uh, off the of today's news, please. The first thing I'll say is that Dr. Giordano, although he was presumably addressing an American audience there because he said Des Moines, not Des Moines, Iowa, uh, said X, Y and Z using a letter name not known in North America. Now, Debbie's last blog from last week has pointed out that he's an overseas fellow of the Royal Society of Medicine. I'm not aware that he's had any part of his career in Britain. Is it possible that an Englishman was whispering in his ear at some point? I don't know. Right. Uh, somebody who has come to my notice through the Telegram channel uh, that I run is Nigel Watson, who produces a wide range of good material on his YouTube channel. And on the 5th of December, he came up with this, three good news stories. He's moved to Pori in southwestern Finland from Britain, uh, Björneborg for the, the Swedes and historically. Uh, Pori's uh, local or regional museum is uh, Satakunta Museum. And at the end of his... Uh, uh, video here, Nigel Watson points this out, that this mainstream museum uh, has commemorated that uh, it's not the first time that dancing was forbidden in Finland during COVID. No, uh, the uh, Mannerheim regime did as well while collaborating with the Nazis. And that has just been deadpan put on the record in a mainstream museum. 
Um, let us consider that we didn't learn the lessons of history. Next door in Sweden, the parliament, the Riksdag, uh, has adopted with no opposition other than two left-wing parties, the Milieu Parti, uh, the Green Party, and the Vänsterpartiet, the left-wing party. Other than, other than that, it's all adopted uh, a foreign espionage bill, Prop 2021-2255, uh, which allows people to be prosecuted for saying rude things about countries which are uh, clandestinely working with Sweden. And if that international collaboration could be brought into disrepute, as uh, New Adoblada reports, then that's enough to have you uh, uh, prosecuted. Uh, on to Britain. Uh, just very recently, the editors of the three right-of-centre newspapers that historically have had a bit more gumption than others in, in talking about uh, the high and mighty and their foibles, have joined forces to write a joint letter uh, says saying that a draft code that's going to be in, uh, imposed on journalists is going to undermine the very basis of journalism. The ICO, one of these awful commissioners' offices, uh, is going to better reflect the rea or should better reflect the realities of journalism. But the editors of these very august titles, at least historically, say that the fundamental problem remains, which is that data protection law (GDPR) is incompatible with journalism. At root, it's because the European Com Convention on Human Rights is now interpreted in its Article 8 family and private life entitlements to mean that you can never mention in a press report that somebody is shacked up with someone else, uh, even when it's relevant to their uh, dodgy dealings. You have to prove it to the standards of a commissioner. A couple of things about my old employer, ECHQ, the Daily Maverick in South Africa, hosts Declassified UK as they reveal that GCHQ, Britain's Signals Intelligence Agency, uh, is all over its home county of Gloucestershire now, uh, getting into primary schools, uh, and here they are doing uh, local library services and recruitment teams have been mobilised to deal with inquiries from schools so that the heads of IT in some of these schools, such as Bishop's Cleve that springs to mind, a suburb of Cheltenham, will say, I don't have to answer you because I'm a, an honorary spook for the purposes of this programme, heads of IT at these schools. Uh, one child uh, was tag-teamed, uh, or rather GCHQ and local police launched a joint tag-team event to gain access to a pupil who had been reported to his school authorities for being very talented. What a crime that is, Brian. And teachers were worried he may be about to cross the line with his online cyber activities. This is going to be rolled out nationally. Um, the journalist involved uh, for Declassified UK uh, was told, uh, as I put that on screen now, uh, we don't have to answer you. It's an absolute exemption uh, from the Freedom of Information Act because we are doing great work for GCHQ while we're on this programme. Next slide. GCHQ may be buying, no confirmation yet, uh, illegal, oh yes, just before we finish that uh, segment, the local member of parliament for Cheltenham, Alex Chalk, who is uh, a very enthusiastic supporter of GCHQ, um, had his ear bent when he went off to unit uh, 8200 in Beersheba, uh, and he mentions that they are the Israeli equivalent of GCHQ, and he's very enamoured of this. This is the Talpiot programme that he's talking about now, he's, he's talking about this as Alex, just to come in, to my mind, what, what of course they're doing is grooming the little children so that ultimately those little children will spy on their families or friends or neighbours, whoever it is, because of course once they believe in the wonderful people at GCHQ, they will tell them everything with the innocence of a little child. Yeah, that's, that's clearly it, and it's going to be rolled out nationally too. Uh, the Grey Zone, I'll just put this on screen for five seconds, uh, reports that uh, a Virginia-based company has come up with um, a very questionable legality, at least in Europe and the UK, 
uh, tool to bury software uh, on your apps uh, to track you even down to the level of what floor of a building you're on by geolocating the height as well. And the potential buyers uh, for this are going to be uh, via Prevail Partners, the same private military company based in Britain that has come to the Grey Zone's attention for putting together crack units for the Ukraine, at least planning to do so. Uh, so this may be a way around uh, the illegality under the GDPR. Uh, you can see in this screenshot given to Kit Klarenberg at the Grey Zone, uh, this is the kind of level of detail. Uh, if I was still in my old job, I would salivate over this detail. You know, uh, the guy is probably on the second floor because the uh, the back door within the apps on his phone suggests that that's how high up from the ground he is and where he's heading. Um, there's one more on GCHQ in this segment as well, which is uh, only tenuously connected with the university. But Sir Richard Dearlove, former head of MI6, uh, and an ex-CIA officer are hiring Magdalen College out of term. Uh, to run a course called uh, Cambridge Security Initiative, I think is what CSI stands for. Mark Curtis reports this in Declassified. And if you hit this, you will see that uh, two former di directors of GCHQ uh, are on the advisory board of CSI, uh, getting students in the summer to think like spooks. Uh, these are, to be fair, two of the best uh, 90s and 2000s directors. Sir Ian Lobbin and before him, Sir David Omond in the early Blair era, re were regarded by staff as, as uh, the least uh, overbearing and, and most realistic of GCHQ directors. Uh, but be that as it may, that's the kind of thing they're involved in. Uh, while we're on spookery, just very much en passant, um, Richard Moore, the current C, the current head of MI6, so the successor to Sir Richard Dearlove, has just been uh, greeting the Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan, uh, as reported by the local branch uh, in Armenia of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Um, they discussed, quote, uh, prospects for bilateral security cooperation. That is one to watch. Uh, the US military possibly uh, flouting various laws in the process. Back in that state of New Jersey we mentioned earlier where so much wokeness is found uh, has got into some hot water. Christopher Schilling is uh, a Marine Corps man uh, in New Jersey uh, who uh, has uh, on social media said that the joint base there takes very seriously that the mother of a primary or as they would say their elementary school girl uh, was concerned uh, about very inappropriate and explicit posters uh, that were put up in the primary school. And if you tap the other half, you will see that uh, in his civilian capacity, or at least uh, social media, uh, as he's the same man, um, he called the mother in question a liar and uh, revealed, possibly affecting the security of this girl, what year or grade the girl was in. Uh, and tap that once more, I think we have a bit more detail on that, which is that uh, it reveals that the joint military base uh, seems to have an agreement with the law enforcement, so the regular police in that part of New Jersey, uh, to put people on some kind of watch list if they say the wrong things about the sexualization of their children. OK, I'm going to skip over the uh, just the next one and uh, uh, bring you into the end. Uh, we certainly need to finish now, Alex, but uh, I think we can start to see what sort of society is being unveiled in UK. Oh, very much so. We could go on for another hour, but I think we would lose even our best, uh, most committed visit, uh, viewers at this point. Uh, we've put it all on the record, but don't despair. Uh, keep some humour and perspective. So with the famous photographs of the Stalin era, with people being airbrushed out of photographs one by one, um, Stalin is in, in the first frame of this meme, flanked by three other Politburo men, uh, Stalin himself is Mr. Government says, says so, he stays the course, but initially he's flanked by commissars, makes you immune, it's safe, and keeps you out of hospital. Now, the first to become a wrong thinker 
is Mr. Makes You Immune. That's no longer sayable. So government say so is only uh, then reinforced by it's safe and keeps you out of hospital. Then keeps you out of hospital uh, is uh, denounced. And the only two men left running the Politburo are government says so and it's safe. And finally, in glorious technicolor, Uncle Joe stands alone and says, get jabbed because the government says so. And if you tap that once more, you will see uh, a suitable additional meme there. One of these 1950s innocent housewives, uh, who's maybe not so innocent when you read her comments, uh, says to you as she smiles over her china cup, you either either understand history or you trust the government. You can't do both. Excellent, um, Alex. Thank you very much for that. I'm going to say to both of you, Alex and Debbie, thank you very much for such comprehensive segments today. And to our viewers and listeners, I hope you understand why we decided to run that news on, because I think the picture in UK is becoming very, very clear. Um, can we do something about it? I believe we can. Have we got time to do something about it? I also believe we have. If we hadn't got that time, we wouldn't be having this conversation with our audience today because the state would be fully in control. But it's up to each and every person to understand what is being assembled in this country and to lift the stones and warn about it. Uh, action con conquers fear. And if you're feeling nervous, team up with a friend and do something very simple together because uh, many hands make light work. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. I'll just add that uh, Mike Robinson uh, is feeling much better, but he's en route to see his family for the Christmas period. He will be joining us on Friday where we will have a very special news uh, with quite a lineup because Alex and Debbie will be with us, Patrick Henningsen and Vanessa. And my good self, have I missed anybody out? I'm not sure. No, I think that's about it. So do join us on Friday and uh, we will have a fun news. Thanks for that. We'll see you Friday at one o'clock. Bye bye.